Uh, we're in James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. As you know, we have been studying through the book of James, and I divided it into really 16 different segments that I felt like were uh, stood, up, stood alone uh, in their context, and we're dealing with them as we bounce through the book of James. And we've gotten to chapter 4. There's only five chapters, so we're getting uh, about midway through. But uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, let me read the entire context, and I want to draw three what I think are really pertinent applications for you and I. This is not as positive a sermon as I'd like for it to be, but it is kind of rainy and nasty outside. So what do you, what do you, you know, what do you do? But uh, this this particular lesson is about fighting amongst ourselves and why we shouldn't do that. And uh, so it, it'll benefit us all, I think. Although I don't think we have any of that going on here in our congregation, but it certainly does happen in the Lord's church. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, James says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scriptures say... He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. If I were to give this lesson a title, it would be a jealous God, a jealous God. You as good Bible students are not unaccustomed to hearing that word in association with God, although it does kind of even then smack of a little bit of a conflict, doesn't it? Uh, we often, I say jealous, and we always assign that to a negative column. That's, that's a sin, that's not good, you can't do that, etc., and yet we recognize that God, on more than one occasion, has been jealous of his own people. And so jealousy, kind of like anger, can have an appropriate expression of itself. If God does it, I want to be able to do it. You know, I want to be like God, right? And so God can be jealous. And we see in this passage, clearly it says that at the end of the verse, what is that, verse 5 that I read there. Uh, as you go to the New Old Testament, you know that God has expressed that as well on several occasions, being jealous over Israel, that they were not as they should be. They had adulterated themselves with the nations around about them, etc. And so God expresses this jealousy that he has, a rightful jealousy. Uh, God forbid, and I can't imagine it ever happening, Cindy and I will celebrate 40 years of marriage a week from today. And uh, we have enjoyed our time together. We're like newlyweds. You know, that now that Gabriel's off to Memphis and my oldest son has been married for some years, Cindy and I, we kind of hold hands when we walk through Walmart. And, you know, we go off and get us a, a bite to eat at a restaurant or whatever. We're kind of enjoying our empty nests, uh, nesting, whatever that is. So we're kind of enjoying that, you know. But let's just say that Cindy would, uh, would be unfaithful to me. And uh, she, after 40 years, would not be what she's supposed to be to me. And I had a feeling toward that other fellow. And let's just say that that feeling toward that other fellow was jealousy. Would that be a righteous jealousy? She's my wife. That other man has intruded upon an area that is uniquely mine. So yeah, I think it is possible for us even today to have a righteous jealousy just as God has a righteous jealousy. Typically, jealousy is not something of righteousness. I get that. But as we see this passage unfold, we find that what God is saying specifically, and I'm going to start at the end and then we'll work back, if you will, that I want you to see verse 5. Notice that he says that God yearns jealously over the spirit 
that he has made to dwell in us. God gave us a spirit, an essence, if you will. He awarded that to you. I believe that happens at conception and God gives you that spirit that would allow you to have your own unique part of him working within you. And I think you take that spirit to whichever place you end up in the eternity. I believe that spirit will end up either in heaven or in hell because it is uniquely yours. It is your essence, if you will. It is not to be confused with the spirit capital S of God. I believe that spirit comes to us, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, once we are born again. We are baptized. Peter himself says that. Repent me, baptize every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, his essence, joins with Sonny Chow's lowercase s spirit when I give my life to him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says that his spirit testifies with my spirit that I am a child of God. The two come together, they blend, if you will. There is a marriage, if you want to call it that, between the spirits that God gave uniquely to you, number one, and he himself has, and those two are designed to come together, be married, if you will, in cooperation, Romans 8, verse 16. Well, God says in verse 5, that, or James says of God, that he is jealous as he yearns, because we are evidently taking our essence and not using it to glorify him. And so he, he's jealous of the fact that we've adulterated our essence in the sense that we have given up our essence to follow after carnal things, selfish things, rather than following after him. That's righteous. It's right of him. He's God. He, if anybody, should be able to desire and want even demand, if he wanted to, our faithfulness, it's God. Well, now I want to go back and I want you to see the first four verses and tell you why he's a jealous God. Why he's upset with the folks that James is addressing here. What made God jealous? Go back to verse 1. What quarrels, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? That's why he's jealous. Then he goes on to elaborate three things. I want you to notice that in this jealousy there is a fight that is taking place. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Verse one, last part of verse one. We're all familiar with the cartoon representation of this with the, you know, you got, to, you got the devil on one shoulder and the angel on one shoulder and the devil's whispering one thing in one ear and the angel's whispering the other thing in the other ear, you know, etc. We got that whole, you know, if you want to put it in Asian terminologies, it's the yin yang kind of a thing where half of the circle is black and half of the circle is white. It's this constant conflict within ourselves. Paul will elaborate on this in Romans chapter 7 where he says, the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I do do. I call it the do-do chapter because it's where he's, he's just in a, a world of hurt because he's constantly wanting to do what's right but yet the, the fleshly carnal nature within him struggles against that and so often he gives in to the wrong thing. Well, God says here as he opens up chapter 4, he says that there are passions within you that are struggling. God will speak directly to Cain back in, what is that, Genesis chapter 4, I believe it is. And um, maybe 5, I think it's 4 though. But he speaks directly to Cain and uh, it's, it's about the fact that sin wants Cain. God will say to Cain that it, he'll say, sin, it's, it's crouching at your door. 
And Calvinists will often take that passage and, and, and they'll suggest to us that Cain being the first, firstborn of Adam, that Cain will have inherited original sin. If anybody inherited original sin, you'd think it would be Cain because he's the firstborn of Adam, right? Which means that that original sin gets passed down through time right into the room today, meaning that we are all guilty of the original sin of Adam, therefore there is no good in us. That's the position of Calvinism. It's not my position. And the reason it's not my position, because in that passage, it goes on to say of Cain that sin is crouching at your door, but he says this in conclusion, but you must rule over it. He does not say, Cain, you are given over to a wicked nature. You have no choice. You have inherited my original sin, therefore you are born in sin. That's not what he says. And by the way, that passage about David is not talking about David being born a sinner either. What God is saying is that you're born into a sinful context. And that sinful context of the world heaps its pressures upon you so quickly and so intensely that it's not long after you understand right from wrong that you're given into the wrong. That's what God is saying. Otherwise, he would not have said to Cain, you must rule over it. Cain had the ability. He could have chosen. Free will? Absolutely. That's exactly what is being taught there, uh, taught there by God. That Cain had the free will opportunity to rule over his sin. He didn't do it. We know that. He kills his brother, etc. We get all of that. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he could have done right. He could have done righteous, been a righteous person. And many people throughout history have been referred to as righteous individuals. So righteousness is a possibility. It is a choice that we make. Although typically speaking in this fallen context, most of us regularly give in to unrighteousness. God will give, if you will, he'll, he'll assign guilt here in this passage and say to Christians, you are guilty because you have chosen conflict. You've chosen carnality over spiritual things and unity. So he goes on to say, if you will, in verse 2, your desire and you desire, excuse me, and have and do not have, so you murder. Kind of like Cain, who did his brother. You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. We are people of conflict because we take our eye off the Lord. So the first thing that you can see with regards to God's jealousy is he is jealous because we have given ourselves all over to conflict rather than unity. Given ourselves over to fighting rather than peace in God. If we just let God reign in our lives, peace can be had. Number two, you might notice that as you go on in, in verse two, he's going to discuss focus here. But the problem here is our focus. It says, go back in the first part of verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see the wrong focus there? That's why the quarrel's happening. That's why we are people of conflict. It's because we, we don't ask, number one. And when we do ask, we don't get what we want because we didn't ask with the right motives. I am guilty of this. Uh, this is a, a this is a problem that I have at times with regards to my own rationale. 
I, I've got a big mouth, as you know, and um, I, I can convince myself to do a lot of things. And sometimes, oftentimes, I have in life convinced myself to do the wrong thing, thinking in my own rationale, as I think this through, it's best for me to do this thing. And when I do that, I take my eye off God. It, it really doesn't matter whether you think you can rationalize it away as being a good thing or not. If God says it's a bad thing, it's a bad thing. Your definition of good and bad doesn't really matter. Because you know at the end of the day what you're going to do with good and bad. You're going to do a definition that satisfies your passions, not God's passions. And that's exactly the problem that he's talking about here. I found it interesting that the word passions here in our text is actually translated from the Greek word hedony. Hedony. That may sound similar to something because it's where we get our English word hedonism. Hedonism. Uh, we as people, to some degree, understand hedonistic. I say hedonistic and you get thoughts of, Ugh, that's really horrible stuff. This past week, Cindy and I went and saw a movie that uh, is put out by a religious group and it had to do with child trafficking and powerful, powerful movie. Uh, and it caused us to, to recognize the horrendous things that are happening to children across the world. And Cindy and I have, have taken a step to, to see if we can't be more supportive of those who are fighting against that kind of thing. But as this movie was depicting some of these horrendous things and calling for us to step up and do better, this concept of hedonism came to mind. It's like the greatest of perversions. It's like when you think of black and then you take it even blacker. That's hedonistic. Well, that's the word being used here when he says that you want to do it, spend it on your own passions. You want to spend it on your own hedonism. Your focus isn't right. Your focus is on you when it needs to be upon God. And that carnality will eat away at you. Most of you know that I, as I am doing the Restoration School of Biblical Studies lessons, one of the things I do on Wednesday night, when you're having class here, I'm doing a live thing. People are watching it with regards to Catholicism. And um, as I am watching Catholicism unfold and various parts of Catholicism played out uh, as far as what they do, etc., and comparing it to Scripture, I'm, I am convinced that one of the things that you're seeing with regards to Catholicism, and not just Catholicism, Calvinism, even within our own numbers at times, is this focus on stuff that pleasures us. Now, I, I don't want to get too personal here, but I, I don't think I'll get fired and made fun of whatever, but do you ever wonder why our service trays are gold? Now, they're not really gold. They're gold-plated. You know, we got the little cross on top, and it's. A, but you ever wonder why, why do we do that? It satisfies our desires. We feel like that that's the most appropriate way for us to distribute the communion because it's. It looks like it is a, a little holier than perhaps some other format. You know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you are let's just say stranded somewhere. We always put the person on a desert island, so let's just go there. You and I, we've had a boat wreck, and all of us are together. You know, it's kind of a Gilligan's Island moment. And uh, we got all stranded on a desert island. Here comes Sunday. And we got grape juice, and we, we can even somehow concoct, you know, the, the unleavened bread or whatever, but we don't have our gold-plated service trays. And so we carve out a 
coconut. And we serve our grape juice from a carved out coconut. Would you be okay with that? I, I suspect you would be. But what made it different than what we do here on Sunday morning? I'm not, I'm not even beginning to suggest we need to have carve out coconuts. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, what are the real motives behind what we do? Why do you sit in a pew? You know, why do we, why do we do the songs on the screen? You know, what, none of those necessarily are bad. I'm not, I'm not preaching against it. I'm just saying we've got to be careful of our motives. And if our motives are purely to make us feel better about what's going on, we're way off track. The thing we want to do in the midst of our services is ask, what would God want in this? How do I make God feel like I'm treasuring his son? That's what we need to be doing. Number three, and I'll end. It's not just the fight and the focus, but it's also the friendship. I say friendship, and you have a positive, warm, fuzzy feeling that comes to your heart, and well, it should, but in this context, it should not, because as you notice, he's going to talk about a friendship with the world. Verse four, um, you adulterous people, that you know, exclamation point in my Bible, you adulterous people, nobody wants to talk about that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so you, you got the two extremes. You can be a friend of the world and an enemy of God, or you can be a friend of God and an enemy of the world. But there really isn't a middle ground here. In fact, he uses several terms here that are kind of in your face. Adulterous, friendship, enmity, enemy of God. All of these are designed to kind of get your dander up, to make you, ooh, you know, I don't want to be that guy. But all of them are associated with what he said in verse 1. You got quarrels and fights among you. Why do we have conflicts like that? Why, why do we have unsettling moments within the family of God? Is it not because we take our focus off of God and put it on him? Romans chapter 14. I'm not going to say it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it's a tough one. But it has solved a lot of things for me. But if you were to go home this afternoon, and I, I just go ahead and give you the assignment. Read Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> one of the things you're going to notice in that chapter is that you're going to have illustration of two guys who are polarized on two different issues. One is holy days. Can you celebrate that holiday or should you not? One guy says you can, and the other guy says you can't. One is meat or food that you eat. One guy eats meat and the other guy doesn't eat, all he eats is vegetables. And so you got these guys and they, they got two issues and they are on polar opposite ends. And yet if you read Romans chapter 14, God says repeatedly in that chapter that he accepts them both. It's interesting how that within the church, within the body of believers, it is possible for you to have an opinion and I to have an opinion and those opinions not necessarily have to separate us. Now, I need you to understand the word I use there. Because that's the word he uses when he opens up in Romans chapter 1. I'm not talking about things that God has specifically laid out. I'm talking about opinions. You and I don't have any, ro any room to, to quibble, any room to, to debate. When it comes to what God has commanded, you and I do that one. And if you're not going to do it, we're going to separate. We're going to go different directions because I'm going to do what God wants done. But there's a lot of things in the life of the church that just simply aren't outlined specifically by God. 
What do you do? Well, Romans chapter 14 says, number one, you recognize that it is possible for both of you to be right. You're going to talk about the weaker brother. Sometimes a brother just or sister has just not grown up enough to arrive at the same position of, of understanding as you. And so you need to be patient. And number two, he's going to say, don't you dare create conflict within the church over topics of opinion. Because in so doing, you are literally adding to God's word and you don't have the right to do that. If God wanted you to have a specific command, yay or nay, on that subject, he was more than capable of giving it. But it's possible that there are some things where God just wants you as a spirit-indwelled individual to use your own initiative to honor him at your level of maturity with the love that's within your heart. And we ought not divide over those things. So when you come back then to James chapter 4, he's going to say, you got to be careful about the fighting. you got to be careful about the focus. And you got to be careful about your friendships. Because all three of those are going to contribute to whether or not there will be peace within the family of God.